Our scripture reading this morning, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Really for some months now, we've now come to the meat, really the beginning of chapter 9, which is the meat of chapter 9. It's going to begin with uh, verse 2 and continue through verse 13. Again, Mark 9, 2 through 13. This is the word of God. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. It's without error, inerrant. It's also infallible in all that it has to teach to us. Now, we just read from the Gospel of Mark. And in addition to Mark's gospel, this event, the transfiguration of Jesus, it's also recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. That's Matthew 17. And also in Luke's gospel, in Luke 9. And while this morning's scripture reading was Mark's version, I'll also be noting, of course, some details that Matthew and that Mark provide, or Matthew and Luke, rather, provide uh, for us. John... The Apostle John, in his gospel, he also touches on this event in his prologue right at the beginning when he references in verse 14 of John 1, we have seen his glory. Of course, one of the ways that John had beheld the glory of Jesus was when he was with James and Peter while they experienced, really, I think a better word than experience would be to witness, right? They've seen this transfiguration event. Indeed, of course, that was glorious. Peter, who was there, he also, in his epistle, 2 Peter, he alludes to the transfiguration in that letter. He says, or writes rather, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. Now, some of your translations might say myths, devised fables or myths. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might want to read about that a little bit further, and so I'm going to 
give you the biblical address for it, really, the chapter and verse. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And I'll leave you with that for your own reading later. But while our brains are still on 2 Peter, thinking about that epistle, let's remind ourselves of the veracity of the Bible, the truths of the Bible. Really, it's miraculous construction. It's the very word of God. 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. It's authored by approximately 40 men. They wrote this in three different languages. They did this over the period over a period of about 1500 years. It's a long time in my book. Some of the authors were young, some were old, some were professionals, others weren't. Some were peasants. Some were soldiers, some were just civil servants. If you want to consider also fishermen and farmers, even kings are are contributors to the scriptures. And they wrote these words in really vastly different genres, literary genres, history, population statistics, poetry, travel diaries, law, prophecy, family trees, biographies, uh, geographical surveys are even included in there, architectural blueprints are in it, and song lyrics are in it. This is a pretty vast, eclectic gathering of writings, right? These weren't handed off like a baton in in a relay race from one person to another. They were indeed written centuries apart, different periods of history and different geographical and cultural situations. They were written to different groups of people who possessed various worldviews, right? Different educations, different cultures. So the unity of scriptures, the unification of the scriptures is in fact a miracle. It's God's supernatural doings. Now I bring that up not just to demonstrate the supernatural intendance of the Bible's singular author, its ultimate author, that being, of course, God himself, the Holy Spirit, but also to highlight what Peter said. Now, if you or I are going to create a religion to try to win over rational people, we wouldn't do it this way. All right, it wouldn't work. You would not include unfathomable and new ideas like the Trinity. It wouldn't make sense. You wouldn't include fantastical events that on their surface seem like myths. Rational people wouldn't follow you, at least not for very long. You'd be, you'd be seen as a kook, maybe a nut. Cleverly invented stories might enable, you, might enable you to win over a small group of gullible people that fill a remote compound for a year or two, but you're not going to change the world with that for eternity. And so Peter is sure to let his readers know that he's not being irrational. That what he experienced wasn't just a a made-up human wild idea, but it was born by God the Father, the majestic glory, as Peter calls him. Now, Peter and others, they were eyewitnesses of this majesty. Hearing the same voice, the very same voice on this mountain that was heard at the Jordan River. You'll remember Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. 
that came out of the out of the heavens, that voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know that as an aside, Peter, he's been wrestling. He's been following in the book of Mark with us. Or if you know the book of Mark a little bit, Peter's been wrestling with an inconsistent understanding of Christ. And he's, he's been experiencing spiritual highs and lows. One can even say the, the highest of highs and even the lowest of lows. He's the first one, the first disciple to rightly proclaim that Jesus is the, is the Son of God. He's the Christ. But then not long afterwards, just the opposite happens. He's accused of being Satan, right? Satan's follower, Satan's worker. I want you to see that Peter's experience, by the way, should offer you some comfort of your spiritual struggles because we're not always consistent, are we? Firstly, if it were up to you and your own strength, your own wisdom to enlighten yourselves about Scripture, about God, and then to live out that commandment to be perfect, to love God perfectly with your entire being, I think we've blown that by the time we've gotten up this morning. We'd have no chance. You would find yourself right there with the Apostle Paul declaring to yourself that you're a wretched person that you're doing the very things that you don't want to do. Those things that you hate, you end up doing. But thanks be to God that salvation and even your maintenance over your salvation is not your doing. It's God's. Yeah, you repent of your sin, absolutely. But that's not a work that, that warrants any kind of merit. It doesn't generate grace far from that. Your repentance is a response to God's grace that has already been bestowed on you. Now, similar to Peter, similar to Paul, similar to Abraham and every other believer that's ever walked this earth, you and I have a lifetime of spiritual ebbs and flows, ups and downs, successes and failures. Some of them are minor. But the path to heavenly glory is narrow, right? We're told that that gate is narrow to get into heaven. Your sanctification, becoming holy, is paved. If you're living in Christ, you're going to have to suffer with Christ. It's paved with tortuous tortuous depths that without the comfort of God's tender care, they'd be unbearable. But by the same token, that path is also paved with stones of unexplainable heights. Glimpses of God's glory and his mercy and the assured hope, assured hope, that's not a contradiction, that certain hope of eternal life, which evokes knee-buckling praise and thanksgiving. Now, after the incident in chapter 8, which we looked at last week and the week before, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you consider that I am, right? He asked them who they considered that he was, and Peter rightly confessed the identity of Jesus as the Christ. But then you'll remember that Peter famously displayed the epitome of ignorance, certainly regarding the ministry of Jesus, right? He got the identity right, but he got the ministry wrong. He got the glory part correct, 
you are the Christ, the son of the living God, but he failed to recognize the suffering requirements of the Messiah and the cost of following him. Now, here we are in the story. We're about a week later. We have the Lord uh, taking Peter and a couple of brothers, James and John. He's taking them up on a mountain, and we're told that he's doing that to pray. That's the purpose of this mountain hike, prayer. And we're also told that they were alone, just the three of uh, the four of them. Now, again, Luke 9 and Matthew 17, they give us some additional color about what uh, over and above, really beyond what Mark provides. And I'm probably not going to keep referencing Matthew or Luke or Mark. That would be tedious to me and probably distracting to you. So these three gospel stories, they, they go together. We read that as they were praying, that Jesus was transfigured before them. You've heard that so much. It might just, might just wash over you, transfigure before them. But what is that? What's up with that? Transfigured. Well, to the human eye, his appearance was changed. That's at its most simple explanation. While they were praying, the appearance of Jesus' face began to change. It radiated like the sun, we're told. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, intensely white, radiantly beyond that of human bleaching. I didn't even know that bleaching existed back then, but it does. It's right there. And that's just what the eye could see, some visible change. But this glory of heavenly origin that Peter and John and James, that they were beholding it, it wasn't new to Jesus. Indeed, we know that Jesus had two complete and two distinct natures. He was simultaneously both 100% man and 100% God. But when he was born, when Jesus became incarnate, right when he was made flesh, he emptied himself of glory, not of deity, but of glory. And in this transfiguration, God the Father is bestowing some of that glory back onto his Son. Now, this bit of glory that these apostles, that they were witnessing, was not the fullness of God's glory. For if it had been, these three men would have been no more. They would have been all consumed. And I say that because they were sinners. And sin cannot coexist with God's full glory. You'll recall that when Isaiah became aware of his sinfulness in the presence of God, he was terrified. He pronounced a a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And when Moses wanted to see God's glory, Moses was told in Exodus 33, you can't. You'll be no more. No one sees the face of God and lives. The full glory of the Lord is too great for our sinful beings to coexist with. And that's precisely why we must be glorified. We must be glorified, right? We must be perfected in our holiness in order to dwell with God in heaven. And so God passed by Moses, allowing him to see only the back of God, part of God's glory. And as you know, by that experience, Moses' face, what happened to it? It was transfigured into something 
very shiny, right? It was with radiance, so much so that when he came down off of the mountain, that would be Mount Sinai, when he came back down off of Mount Sinai to reunite with Israel, with the people, Aaron, the, the, the priest and, and Moses' brother Aaron, and the people of Israel, they saw the skin of Moses' face glowing. And they were afraid of him. They didn't want to come near him. Some of you who know your Bibles well, you might be thinking now about Psalm 104. Specifically, verse 2 in Psalm 104, it describes God as one who is clothed with splendor and majesty, being covered with light as a garment. The psalmist, of course, he's referring to God, which is the very point here. This Jesus who is transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John is God. So don't don't let those well-dressed or even well-meaning, clean-cut and confident cults show up on your doorstep and tell you that Jesus was just a prophet. He was a prophet, but far more than that, he was God. Don't let them tell you that Jesus was created and to twist the scriptures into somehow pointing that out, that he was anything other than fully God from eternity past. You need, we need to put on the full armor of God to be able to defend these accusations, to be able to have what's called a biblical apology that spells out what you believe and why you believe it. And so in this event... Jesus, he's radiating the glory of God there on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And then who appears? Moses and Elijah. According to Luke, these three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they're holding a conversation. What is that about? They're holding a conversation that we're told about Jesus' pending departure. That's, that's his crucifixion. That's his death, that's his resurrection, that's his his ascension. That's the exodus of Jesus from this earth. It's going to finish his earthly ministry and his work as the suffering servant who would atone for the sins of mankind. It's quite the conversation going on. The new covenant in Christ's blood prophesied by Jeremiah. We preached on this and heard words from God on this several weeks ago that Jeremiah, all of a sudden, this is going to find its fulfillment here in just a few weeks. It's going to be executed, and it's going to be fulfilled. That new, that new covenant is going to be fulfilled at Jerusalem. And yet we have the testimony, actually, of men who were there. If this were a board meeting, those doors would be closed. But now we have the testimony of witnesses to maybe the most important meeting in all of history. It's incredible. And you know, if you've been here in these pews, you know you've hired a preacher who finds it hard to preach a sermon without sharing insights on the original language. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, the New in Greek, with some conversations in Aramaic. But despite that temptation, I pretty much keep the Greek and the Hebrew to myself. I don't Share it because it won't be of much value to you. You don't know it. And I don't know it all that great. I know it enough, but use it or lose it. Got to stay in the books to keep fresh on those. But unless your son 
goes to a fraternity at UVA or your daughter maybe a sorority at WNL or some honor society like Beta Alpha Psi or Kappa Delta Pi, and you probably have little interest in the Greek alphabet. Of course, a little bit of it is helpful so that you know what Alpha and Omega mean in the scriptures. It gives you a little bit of a grasp of what Jesus meant when he declared himself to be the beginning and the end. But here's something that I think you'll want to know, something you'll be happy uh, something you'll be helped to know, and so I'm happy to share it with you. The Greek word for transfiguration in Mark 9, 2 is metamorphothē. Of course, you know where I'm going with this. It's actually a sentence. That one word literally means he was transfigured. But the base word metamorph is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It describes a radical change about being changed from some state of immaturity into adulthood or from one nature into one that's entirely different, usually better, usually more complete. The example you may be thinking of, at least I was when I was looking through this and looking at uh, commentaries, is the caterpillar, right? The caterpillar being changed into a butterfly. That's metamorphosis. But the Bible uses this base word, metamorph, in Matthew 17, which mimics Luke 9 and today's uh, uh, Mark 9. It uses it in Romans 12, verse 2, when Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's also used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where, where Paul speaks of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. As we grow up in Christ, Paul tells us, we're being transformed or conformed, transformed into his image. That's it. Four times in the New Testament that this word is used. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're really, you're really a believer, you really believe that which we confessed in the Apostles' Creed a few minutes ago, then you're becoming a, a butterfly of sorts. You're being... Changed, you're being transformed, conformed to Jesus. Some of you can look around. Maybe you look at me and you'll say, that guy's a caterpillar. <laughs> We're all caterpillars. That's all right. We're all being transformed. We're all metamorphosing. Metamorphosing, that's the word, in what God has called you to become. Okay? So the Bible speaks of salvation in its past and its present and its future. You have been saved. You are being saved and you will be saved, right? You've been justified, you're being sanctified, and you will be glorified. That's certain hope. What Peter and James and John are experiencing on this mountain is a bit of revelation. Really, it's a revealing of that which has for a long time been concealed. It's what John Calvin, what he called a temporary exhibition of Jesus' glory. I said last week that the glory of God, which had been veiled in Christ's humanity, not obliterated, okay, but just veiled, it was made radiant and observed by those disciples on this mountain. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, the book of Isaiah 53, spells out this humanity, this veiling. He says, he had no stately form or majesty to attract us. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. Does that sound like a great deity to you? No, that glory is veiled. In this event, this transfiguration, there was a brief manifestation of God that had not been seen in the man Jesus just prior to this event, nor did it happen just after this event. In Hebrews 1.3, it tells us that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. I almost want to say amen and close this now. Maybe you want me to do that now, but wait, there's more. There's more. 2 Corinthians speaks to the freedom of Christ which the law could not provide. We can't keep it. We can't keep that law, but Christ, he kept it on our behalf. 2 Corinthians, that letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament, speaks to the glory of Christ fulfilling that which the Old Testament could only point to. That glory in the Old Testament which was veiled. Now I'm going to read this to you. 2 Corinthians 3.12 and following. Since we have such a hope, again, that's, that's not hope like rolling a dice, rolling dice and hoping that you know, two ones come up. That's assurance. It's an assured hope. Assurance of glory in Christ. We are very bold, it says, because of that assurance. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, and when they say Moses, they mean the law. Moses represents represents the law. And because we can't keep it, because we're always blowing it, the law points us to grace. It points us to Christ. We have no hope in the law. So whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Do you see what this is talking about? The pithy saying, maybe you've heard this before. It actually comes from Augustine many, many centuries ago. But the pithy saying is that the new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. The law cannot change a heart. You've heard me say this before. Under the law, our hearts remain calcified and stony. But in Christ, who fulfilled it, we have freedom from that law. Right? That's freedom in Christ. Not to behave how we want to behave, but to behave how we ought to behave. To live as we ought, as God called us to. It's all grace, folks. It's all grace. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. And all he asks is that you receive it. And by that gift received, he says, so shall you be changed, metamorphosed, butterflies. But Edgemont, all that... All that Mark and Luke and Peter and John, all that they describe in their various texts, and certainly all I can do to to describe this from this pulpit, it falls woefully, 
woefully short of the actual experience because we're limited by language and by experience and, be, and by our finitude and by our, our, our messed up minds. God accommodates man to see him. Right? God the Father is a spirit. You can't see him really, but he accommodates us. He shows up in the burning bush to Moses. Even though Jesus hadn't yet been born, he manifests himself to Joshua right on the, on the precipice of entering the promised land to annihilate the Canaanites. It's a Christophany we, we have concluded that Jesus shows up in this warrior battle gear talking to Joshua in many biblical texts some of which you might be able to think of off the top of your head. Though God is a spirit, God the Father describes himself in bodily form. So we can understand God's point when he talks about his authority being his right hand or protecting us under his wing. God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have feathers. In reality, the entire Bible, the whole thing is an accommodation to us as long as we walk this earth, so that we're able to appreciate or to see the full beauty of God and all of his glory. It's literally indescribable. Similarly, nor will we ever be able to appreciate our sinful condition and the extent of it, what it really is. Now, if you don't believe that, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself a question. Explain to yourself why hell is eternal. Why is eternal suffering and torment justified? Why is it necessary? Can't everyone go to heaven? Or if not, can't God just snuff out the unrepentant sinner like a bug on a windshield? Right? Annihilation? The answer is no. Neither of those are options. The only right answer, the only one to those questions, is that sin is such an offense to the holy God that therefore eternal damnation of the soul is the only punishment that it deserves. That's hard to fathom. And I say it's hard to fathom. We really can't fathom it because we don't have enough... We don't have an appreciation for the fullness of God's glory, nor the fullness of the offense of our sin to that holy God. It's cosmic treason. And the punishment for it is eternal death. Eternal hell, no escape, no ability or opportunity to pay, to pay off the debt. It's beyond our ability against the one who's been offended. And so, my dear, my dear brothers and sisters, If you begin to understand that, who God is versus who you are, what he deserves and demands versus what you've done and how you think, then you can have no other response except a deep dread of hell, the likes of which no Xanax can relax you, or or an unmitigated thankfulness because you know Jesus as your atonement who gave himself up in your place. There's really no in-between. We might think there's an in-between because we go through the 
daily motions of life and ignorance, or we shut down to the truths of God, or unaware, or unwill, or are unwilling to think of the souls that are going to be called to account by the very God who created us. So we should wake up, not only for our own sakes, but we should wake up and tell those that we come in contact with about the reality of those destinies. All right, so anyway, this description of the transfiguration, it's an accommodation of God to get us a little bit of a taste of what we're unable to fully comprehend. It defies language. He became what we, I'm sorry, he became what he was not, namely a man, without ceasing to be what he was, namely fully God. On this mountain, these three apostles are given a bit of a, a sneak preview, all right? They're given a little bit of a movie trailer, if you want to call it that, of what will uh, be fully manifested after the resurrection, which will be finally fulfilled at the end of this earth's age, when history and life as we know it will come to a close. When does that happen? It happens at the, what's the fancy word is parousia, but it's the second coming of Christ when he comes back in all of his glory. And I'm going to wind down with this. I have one more minute before noon, and I turn into a pumpkin. This session told me that. So I'm going to wind down with this. Then, suddenly, four people became six. Two key men from the Old Testament are now talking with Jesus. Moses, who you now know, represents the law. And Elijah, who represents the prophets. Right? He spoke of the restoration of God. And both of these men, those who delivered and revealed the will of God to the chosen people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Now, at a minimum, this shows us that the Old Testament and the New Testament are perfectly united. We're going to have to talk about this more next week. The presence of these men were selected by God so that the old and the new may be seen as compatible, as complementary, and as connected There's only one common thread, just one that runs throughout the entire uh, Bible, and that's what I call the scarlet thread of redemption. Old Testament and New Testament by faith only. Redemption. Now, the significance of Moses as the lawgiver and Elijah as representing the prophets, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. For he's the one, Jesus is the one. He says this, it's Matthew 5, verse 17. He's the one who didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. We're going to have to hold on to that till next week. There's more to this event, of course. I've only been able to make it through verse 4. So let's consider this part one for now. Lord willing, I trust you'll come back next week. I dearly hope you do, and we'll see how this message further unfolds. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've made yourself known to us to the extent that we are made aware of who you are and our condition as sinful people before you. So God, with that, we should all fall on our faces and repent. In fact, that's the application of this morning's sermon. I don't know, God, maybe, maybe that's the application of every sermon. Repent and be saved. 
Father, thank you for, for those present today. None of us are here by mistake. Your sovereign hand has brought us here. I pray that you would please bless them with your word, with your spirit. That you would watch over us as we depart to our homes and return us next week safely so that we may worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen.